This is Jamie. And this is Heather. And you are listening to Soul Archaeology, where we dig for the ultimate truth amongst the layers of our lived experiences. Today, we're talking about the role of Hollywood and the entertainment industry in the process of spiritual awakening. Yeah. And I think I think you and I both have an interesting take on this in particular, because we both have some sort of familial connection. You have a much closer familial connection than I do. Um, but it's, it's interesting growing up with that kind of like mine was always in the, it's always been in the background of my dad's side of the family. Um, and yours was much closer. Your, your parents were both in the industry. Yeah. And you dipped your toe in. I almost dipped my toe in and did not actually materialize in it. Well, I won't say that. I, I do have, I would have one credit. I was in a Barbara Mandrell Christmas special when I was <laughs> two. <laughs> that is so of the era. Barbara right. Mandrell. Holy shit. Okay. Wow. All right. Most of you will probably have no idea who that is or what it's attached to. And that's okay. <laughs> but look it up on YouTube because, Wow. I think I found it once. I think I found, I think I found clips of the special ones. Um, I don't know that I found clips from, from where I was. I was like two or three, but I remember it. Like I remember it happening. Wow. Yeah. We were filming in Canada at my aunt's up, up near where my aunt and uncle lived and well, and my grandparents at the time. So they were, and I remember being in, I was being pulled in the snow at the back of a of a little hay wagon with big ponies and the Mandrell sisters sitting up front with the <laughs> driver singing and and some film crews like riding along next to us. Like I remember that. That is so being random. Super super tiny at the time, but yeah. I remember it was very freaking cold and I was done. <laughs> right. I'm I'm sure that there was uh I'm sure that there was a child with a very crabby face somewhere <laughs> in her little in her little special. Not everything is so well, merry in Barbara Mandel's Christmas. Children mm-hmm. are being abused with frigid temperatures and <laughs> long working hours. Um yeah, I had my dad and mom were both in the industry. My dad was an actor. Actually, both of them were actors. But when my mom came out here, I don't know, maybe like when I was two or three, she switched over to makeup um, because acting wasn't dependable enough to pay the bills. Yeah. And my dad uh, used a couple of his jobs to get her her hours with the union. One of those jobs was Little House on the Prairie. He was on several times and I got to visit the set and I wanted, I, hmm, did I want to be in the industry? No, I wanted to be cool. I didn't really want to be in the industry. I wanted to be on Broadway, Mm. but Broadway was in New York and I was in Los Angeles. So 
I wanted to be, you know, it was very common for kids in my school to be in the industry. I went to school with Mark Paul Gosler. I went to school with a few other kids that you probably wouldn't know by name, but were frequently doing Barbie commercials and things of that ilk. And I, and I was, it did come naturally, naturally to me, acting, singing, dancing, all of those things came very naturally to me. What did not come naturally to me was self-esteem. And I was, as most kids are painfully aware of this. And so it made the messages I was getting when I was very small, very difficult to process. They all seemed to conflict each other. My parents were awesome parents. They cared deeply for me. They would have never willingly allowed anything to happen to me. And yet I was born with a sense that if I didn't watch out for myself, I would end up big hurt. Yeah. And so that lack of trust or perhaps maybe we could call it a lack of naivety uh, stymied my progress in the industry. (laughs) Namely, I remember going in for a 7-Eleven commercial and they wanted me to drink this Slurpee that was electrified. (laughs) At least that's how my child brain saw it. It was lit up from the inside. It was like one of those light um, lamp Slurpees. And mm. I was so, they wanted me to put my mouth on the straw and pretend I was drinking it. But in my kid head, it didn't make sense because I was like, if that's a Slurpee and it's electrified, I will be electrocuted. To me light up Slurpee equals death. And I was like, absolutely not. Are you fucking kidding? And I was looking at these adults like, who do you think I am? Like, do you think I'm just expendable? Like, what is happening? I couldn't process it in my mind box and ended up getting let go from the commercial. My parents were very angry. (laughs) They were my, my dad more than my mom. My mom was, you know, tried to be understanding. But when my dad got angry, the tension always rose in the house and he was very angry. I was supposed to do exactly what I was told without question. That was the rule of being on set. That was the price you pay for being in the industry. You let adults tell you you're fat. You let adults tell you your teeth are wrong. You let adults tell you you're ugly and you nod and say yes. And that was the role that a child had in the industry back then. And I remember another specific incident, and this is pretty much pretty much what ended it for me, was I had an interview for a new agent, Iris Burton. <laughs> she was very big at the time. I, I know the name. All the, all the children. And the preparatory talk I had going into this meeting was, you're going to go in and you're going to talk to this lady, and she may seem like she's mean, but she's really not. She's testing you. Do you understand? She's testing you. She wants to know that you're going to be able to get along with people. She wants to know that you're going to do what you're asked to do because that's what the job requires. Do you understand? And I said, yes. And they said, whatever she asks you, just say yes. Leave it up to us. Just know that if it came down to you doing something you were uncomfortable doing, we would not let that happen. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. But inside I was like, could she possibly ask me that would require this kind of grooming? 
granted, it yeah. wasn't said in those words in my head because I was just a child, but it was grooming. And I went into the interview and my parents sent me into this room with this crabby old bitch who was there to test and manipulate me. And I could feel it. I could feel all of it. 100% knew exactly what was going on. And I wasn't part of it. I was like, I'm sorry. What? Did you see me not drink the electric Slurpee? I don't think so. You know, but I was going mm-hmm. along with it. And she was asking me this series of questions. If we asked you to hold a frog, would you hold a frog? Yes. Did I want to hold a frog? No. But I said, yes. If we asked you to do this, would you do? Yes. And finally, she gets to the big question. Now, when I was little, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in my hair. I had very long blonde hair down past my ass. And it was what I was known for. And at that point, I had already witnessed my mom's weight loss struggles. I had witnessed my dad's obsession with staying fit and being thin. I had witnessed um, my friends, like I was just built different. I was short. I was stocky. I was short-waisted. I had a short neck. I was aware, painfully aware of all of this by the time I was three. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing I really had going for me, other than the puffy cheeks that all adults love to pinch, which I fucking hated um without my permission um was my long blonde hair don't ever cut your hair it's so beautiful don't ever cut your hair oh my gosh your hair is just and she came down to the question of would you cut your hair and I said no (laughs) like the mask came off and I was like what are you kidding are you aware that's the only thing that makes me valuable on this planet is my fucking hair no interview over I was done Mm -hmm. The end. No Iris Burton for me. And my parents, I I don't remember. There was maybe one other time in my life where my parents were that angry with me. I caught hell. I had disappointed both mother and father. And it took a long time for me to process that to the point where I could compartmentalize it. That's how, sure. that's how traumatizing it was. I felt like I had let everybody down. And it's only recently that I kind of took that out of the box and started looking at it again for all its cracks and facets. And I realized that my parents were grooming me for an industry that didn't give a shit about me, thinking that they would be there to protect me. But there was no possible way they could have been there to protect me because now with all the stuff that's coming out about the industry, it's quite clear that that's not realistic. But nobody knew that back then. There was a veil and it wasn't until you were behind that veil that you could have possibly known what would happen to you. And I realized looking back on it that my friggin' empath instincts were just firing on all cylinders. And the reason that I finally broke down and said no to cutting my hair was because I had boundaries. Mm-hmm. Even as a child, I had fucking boundaries. And what I was picking up on, the hair was just a, a symptom. It was just a, a trigger, a hair trigger. <laughs> anyway. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what I was picking up on was the grooming. 
what I was picking up on was these people are going to step in between me and my parents. They're going to bank on the fact that I'm too young to be able to make up my own mind. And they're going to bank on the fact that my parents are too trusting to think that anything as bad as what could happen can happen. And I knew that somewhere in my soul. And I wasn't down for it. And that's what happened that day. And how sad is it that I grew up my entire life believing that my parents couldn't take care of me because of these early times. Now, truth be told, I believe I came in with that feeling. I believe I was born feeling like I came in to take care of my parents. So it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that the manipulation or the grooming um, caused me to believe that. It was that it reinforced my original initial birth thought. Same. Yeah. And I think that that is a huge deal for a lot of people when you come close to suffering abuse or you actually suffer abuse and you have trust issues. Can you look back to when you were as, you know, as far back as you can remember, as little as you can remember? Does it feel like those things were taught to you or that you came in with those trust issues? Because I came in with them. Yeah, 1000%. I know. I know that I came in with those issues. I know that I came in remembering a whole lot more than I think a whole lot of people remember. And I projected those memories onto this brand new palette that I had laid in front of me. Because I was, as a child, I was painfully shy, or at least that's what they called it. So that's what, how I identified with it. But really, if I look at it now, it's like, no, I just didn't trust anybody. I didn't want anybody to see me. I didn't want anybody to talk to me. I didn't want anybody to touch me. I didn't want anybody to come near me. I wanted the opportunity to be behind curtains and observe what was going on for myself before I took any type of like initiatory steps into a conversation or a situation And I remember like when I was very young, I was very thin, much like you. I had very, 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 very long blonde hair, which was my thing down past my butt. Mm -hmm. And I remember having people look at me and at the time, um, one of the big shows that was on TV at the time when I was very young was um, Benson. Benson. (laughs) I knew you were going to say Benson. (laughs) And I very much looked like Missy Gold, who was, yeah, who was the, the big child actress um, at the time. And everybody from, you know, people at the bank to my aunts who were already in the industry and, and getting their children into the industry. Um, we like, oh, she looks just like Missy Gold. That now would be a, you know, strike while the iron's hot. Now would be a great time. I can get you auditions. You know, the, I remember that talk happening over and over again. And my mom going, you know, well, do you think you want to do that? And kind of, it, there was a part of my childhood heart that saw, you know, like I loved watching television shows like Wonder Woman 
and the bionic woman. And I loved seeing these female characters and acting that out in my living room or on my front porch. I had a white slip when I was little that I would run outside in and like run up and down our porch and pretend that I like, like I was Diana, the, the, the princess of, of the, the Amazon. Amazonian princess. <laughs> and you know, my, my, my long blonde hair flowing in the wind, with, you know, glistening on my, on my little sateen, uh, you know, white slip. And, and so part of me thought, Oh, that would be exciting. That would be fun. I'd like to do that. And then I thought about being around people and I was like, no, <laughs> Wait, I would rather involved. not. People, people are involved. Mm. Hard pass. And, Hard pass. And, and those people are going to judge me and they're going to tell me what to do and they're going to make me do things. And I don't want to do things that people tell me what to, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, I don't think I ever liked anybody telling me what to do. Although I was such a people pleaser when I was younger, I don't, like it's hard for me even to this day to wrap my head around how those two things coexisted. It's like, how was it that obviously this was something within you that you were not cool with. And yet as you grew up, you became one of the most bend over backwards, malleable people, pleasing people like on the planet. And I mm-hmm. really think I, just from my observing, my observing was I was too strong-willed. I was too strong-headed and people didn't like me because of that. And so if I wanted to be liked and I wanted to be considered, then I was going to have to bend myself into a pretzel to be whoever it was that those people wanted me to be. And that has been something ever since that I have fought. And I know that like, I had a lot of opportunities to be in the entertainment industry, even from like, like I was involved in, in choir and drama and things like that in, in school, um, in high school, I remember going to the Southern California uh, Educational Theater Association's CETA's big shindig because our drama department um, won a spot in uh, basically showing showing one of our our plays, and I was stage managing and things like that. So. And I was an advanced theater student. So I I went and it was like a whole weekend long thing. And you did a bunch of workshops. You learned how to do makeup. You learned how to do, um, you know, about costuming and theater sports, which is basically uh, stunt work <laughs> and learning how to take a slap and, and fall on cue and make it look right and things like that. And one of the workshops that I went to was how to get into the industry. And it was with a woman named Leslie, who was the director of on-air promotions for Fox at the time. And I remember sitting in on her lecture and listening to her talk. And she was very frank, to be honest, for like for knowing it was a group of high school students that she was talking to, she was very frank, especially with the females letting them know it is really hard to be a woman in this industry. And you are going to get 
told that you can't do certain things. You are going to be pushed to the side. You're going to have to bite, scratch, and claw your way to the places where you want to get to. You're going to be continually pushed aside and told that you can't do things because you're a woman. Are you sure this is something you want to do? Because it took me for freaking ever to get where I'm at. And I had to like claw myself there. And there was something about the fight in her that I enjoyed. And I was like, she's ballsy. Like, I like her. I, I want to be like that. I want to be like, I want to be assertive like that. That's I the trick. Is what I thought. That's the dirty and, trick. That's right? the dirty trick. And, and at the time, like, when she was saying all of this, and one of the most important things that she said, you know, she's like, if you have an opportunity, like, if you know somebody in the industry, use that connection, because it's absolutely who you know. And so at the end of the thing, while she was taking questions, I raised my little hand up and I said, well, you said it was really important to know somebody in the industry. So I know you. Can you help me? And she was like, girl, I like your attitude. Here's my number. I want you to call me. And I got to go down to the, to Fox and I met with her and I got to meet, what's his name? Now it's escaping me. Don, he's the guy, he was the voice, the guy that was the voice of all of the promotional shit everywhere, forever and ever, the really deep voice guy that would come in and say, and this week on Beverly Hills 90210, that guy. And I got to go and watch him in the booth run one of his things. He was hilarious. One of the sweetest men ever talked to the group, the small group of us that ended up being there and was like, he's like, I love my job. I love what I do. I get up every day at around 1030. A studio car comes for me around 11. I come in and I do like three things and then I go home and I get to wear the sloppy jeans and t-shirts every day. Sweet. <laughs> and they pay me a grip load of money to do it. And it was like, oh, that's cool. You know? And I got to interview as like for an assistant position with one of their people that day. And she put, she's like, just go and do it. You're probably there. He's probably going to tell you you're not qualified. That's fine. Go in there, have the thing anyway, talk to him. Hey, maybe he's willing to take you on. Maybe he's not, but go in and get the experience. And I remember doing that. And then shortly afterwards, my cousin at the time had had, he was part owner in a sound studio uh, in Burbank and was like, why don't you come out here and live out of my, my like furnished garage and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll help you get gigs. And this was like right after high school. And this cousin in particular was one of the most manipulative <laughs> uh, people that I knew. And I knew that I would be forever indebted to him and that he would never let go of that ever. And I said, no. And at that moment, I kind of knew, okay, you know that this is probably where this ends, right? Like the entertainment industry is probably not going to be your path, even though this is what you thought was going to be your path. It's probably not going to be your path. Yeah. 
And I just kind of watched my family around me transition through all these different, you know, from, from little roles and, and small movies that later became called classics to auditioning as break dancers for the 1984 Olympics <laughs> and, and being actually getting chosen to be in it. And thinking that was a big deal to one of their very best friends going on to be an, a, an Oscar winner like that. I watched all of that go down and just from the behind the scenes of it, what a twisted, weird situation. It's a tangled web. Totally a tangled web. And, but it felt like the whole time it felt like you are supposed to see this, but you're not supposed to be in the middle of it. Yeah. For me, it was like um, there was always that fork in the road that it was it would always be something that I'd be flirting with, but it would come down to me actually deciding to commit. And I never I could never do that. I it was always something it was either I felt too unsafe as a child. I felt I would be taken advantage of, which I 100 percent would have been had I met with any measure of success. I believe that fully. Um, to my self-esteem just kept on declining through high school. And I was like, you know, and it didn't help that my parents were both in the industry. And like I said, my mom was constantly struggling with her weight. My dad was a control freak in terms of his own weight. So he wasn't struggling with it so much as he was, he had it on lockdown, you know, and he was struggling with other addictions where that energy of locking something down has to spill over into something. And for him, it became alcoholism and exercise. And so I would watch him cycle and I was like, nah, none of this seems good. None of it it seems healthy. I don't want to be any of this. Abort, abort. (laughs) Total abort. But the problem was is that I didn't have any patterns to follow that were good. True. So while I was – IDing correctly the things that weren't good, I was not at all able to come up with my own things that were good. I didn't know what good looked like. And, you know, when I was very little, my dad and I, I can tell you exactly where it took place. And I might start crying just talking about it. But we were on a walk coming home from the grocery store. And we were just outside a very specific neighbor's house. I can see it in my head, just outside the big cinder block wall. And he, we had been talking about the business. I would often get my parents talking about the business to sort of try and ch- mm, twofold, to check in with where the business was at in terms of their point of view and to let them know that it's still something that I had in my heart that I really, because I really, that's the only thing I could ever see myself doing. Mm-hmm. And yet I wasn't doing it. So there was a huge contradiction, a huge paradox happening within me that I couldn't resolve. And that was my way of trying to get them to see me, mm-hmm. uh, which they were never really able to do because they were too busy trying to see themselves. And I think that that's just human. That's not that's not sure. saying anything about their character. It's just if you are with a parent who is in the entertainment industry, it is very likely you did not feel seen as a child because for a person, especially in front of the camera, to be in the industry, it it requires a certain level of trauma 
that you think you will be able to strive to overcome if you can just find success in an industry that is designed to only allow you success for being a doormat? Well, and I feel like in most cases, even the adults are children. They are children. Like, it's it's like all you, inner you never, you never get to grow out no. of that. No, and that's the point is that the the industry is designed to groom you to say yes. Only children yeah. always say yes because children, that's their survival mechanism. They don't have the means to go take care of themselves. So they're literally prisoners of their parents or their caretakers. And so an, an industry that is strictly designed to reward people who say yes raises parents who are still children. Now, yeah. this can be said about a lot of things, I'm sure, but we are talking specifically in the framing of Hollywood and the entertainment industry at this point. And on that walk home, my dad said to me something that would sh fucking damage me for fucking ever. He said, Heather, in this industry, there are leading ladies and there are best friends. There are supporting actresses. You're not leading lady material. Mm -hmm. My own father did not see me ever being leading lady material. And I grew up with that as my North Star. But your father never saw himself as being no. a leading man material. No, he was, he was 10 out of 10 incorrect. However, being a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, whatever I was child, there was no way I could have known that. Yeah. And so that became the wound that I would never know I needed to heal until I was much older, until now. You know what I mean? Like now in the past five years is when I realized, oh, holy shit. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was fucked up. And uh, that came from someone who was fucked up. And it wasn't his fault. He didn't do it on purpose. He didn't mean to hurt you. You were just collateral damage. And you had no way of knowing you were collateral damage because you were made to believe that collateral damage was the way things are. Like, that's normal. Like, that's, yeah. I know what I'm talking about. And what I'm talking about is telling you that you'll never be what you want to be. Well, and, and so you were a direct reflection of him. Absolutely. Staring at him. And this was the conversation he was having with himself. Absolutely. That, that he, that he pushed down and, and self medicated with alcohol to yep. try to escape. Yep. And could not. Nope. And saw you and went, that's me. Yep. I don't, and, and it was always. And, and couldn't brain that. Well, the I'm motivation sure. for people is always, I don't want her to go through what I went through. And so sure. they end up taking us through exactly what they went mm -hmm. through. Because again, just like I had no patterns to, for, you know, making better behavior or doing good things for myself or being healthy, he didn't either. Yeah. You know, it's a cliche for a reason that hurt people hurt people. And our parents were just hurt people. Hurt people. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. as I started my spiritual journey, of course, the whole Hollywood thing, that was a huge part of it in terms of what I needed to heal because I realized that I had past life damage that I had specifically brought into this life. There was a reason 
I incarnated to my parents who were both in the industry, but were not megastars. There was a reason that we lived just over the hill, which for anyone living outside of Southern California, just over the hill means that you're living just outside of Hollywood. You're living on the perimeter. You're far enough away that you're not in the hubbub of Hollywood, but you're close enough to be there in a mo- at a moment's notice if you need to, traffic-wise. That's not a coincidence. Spiritually, Mm-mm. that's where I incarnated too. So it's just crazy to me how my spiritual incarnation of bringing that past life baggage where I felt like because the life that I ended that was supposed to be my Hollywood life. It ended early. It ended abruptly. It ended traumatically. And it ended with a lot of unfinished business. So I took all of that unfinished business and I carried it right into this life, (laughs) giving myself, setting myself up for the opportunity to finish that business if I chose to or not. It didn't have to be that way. And there was going to be a very specific path if I chose to finish that business from that life and a very non-specific path if I didn't. And I chose non-specific for better or worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I still don't know what I'm fucking doing. <laughs> I still have no aim. I still have no real direction. You know, isn't that funny that I chose not to be someone's pawn. I chose not to have a director constantly in my life. And now I have no direction. Like, you can't make this shit up. This is not coincidental. This is how spirituality speaks in your life. Yeah, same. I mean, same. It's it's a very similar situation, even though I was very much on the sidelines and very aware of being on the sidelines. I was also very aware of um, potentiality. And I kept trying to find a way to cheat that particular system and find a crack, you know, a hole in the fence that I could climb through. There must be someplace I fit in. There must be a niche for me somewhere because why would I want this so badly if I weren't supposed to have it? Yeah. And I don't know ultimately if it was just a desire or, or a push from my higher self to get get myself out into the world again because I know for lifetimes I had been self-sequestered for a reason but self-sequestered all the same and was this my way of trying to pry that back and maybe deal with some of the fallout, if you will, of of the distortion of having agreed to a particular type of sequestering and what that story evolved into after a while of of living a similar type of of life where every time I was coming in with a holding on to just enough remembering to kind of think there's something to this. There's something I'm supposed to be doing. But I have this feeling like I'm I'm not supposed to put myself out there, but I'm supposed to be in the middle of things. I'm supposed to be observing the things, but I'm not supposed to be out there too much. Not enough to get recognized. 
just enough to be able to see what's going on, observe it, figure out how I can jump in without being recognized and jump back out without being recognized at any given moment seem to be my my way of doing things. That seems to have been the, the cycle that I have lived over and over again if I revisit um, previous lifetimes. But it every time it seems like there is some sort of um, theatricality to it. You know, what, whatever I'm going up against, whatever the thing is that I'm that I'm not supposed to be fully recognized by, it's whatever at the eye, whatever is in at the center of attention, the thing that people focus on. So either that be some sort of government or an entertainment industry, because it, it is almost like its own, it's its own governing factor. Even looking at where you live, there is, you know, and being on the other side of the hill, there is a magnetism that draws you into that pocket. And a lot of people have a very hard time leaving that pocket because there's, there's just a, there's a magnetism and there's a little bit of electricity around it. And there's, there's just enough excitement in it to keep you curious and interested. But at the same time, there's also a very like polarizing feeling to it that if, if, if you can see it, if you can feel it, there is this kind of immediate, like, Oh no, like I want to block that. I want to, I want to shut that out somehow. Like, I want to shut it out, but at the same time, I need to be able to peek, to, like, pull that curtain back and peek through the curtain <laughs> like you're just and watching, see what's happening. You're just watching through your fingers. You, you can't look away. It's, it's, a, it's a fucking it's train a, wreck. It is a train wreck. And, it's, and it's, still, it's still one of those train wrecks that is, like, unfolding constantly. And I've seen, like, I remember seeing certain things take place and and hearing about certain things as I'm watching my my cousins go through things even before then like hearing stories from my aunts my my aunts grew up in an era there the family was very much um tied to a lot of uh old school country western stars my great grandfather was um, aligned with the family that was the precursor to the precursor to the Grand Ole Opry and Hee Haw, which were became very big in in the sixties, seventies, and kind of started to fizzle out in the early eighties. But my family ended up being a very big peripheral peripheral to that community presence yeah a peripheral presence presence to that community and they knew a lot of the key people they knew green james and mini pearl and they knew those people my aunts were singers and my grandfather was a musician my great-grandfather was a musician and 
my grandfather told my aunts when they were very young, okay, if this is what you want to do, we're right here. You know, we can, we can start putting you out there, but you kind of have to make a decision on what you want to do. So when they were in their early twenties, they guest starred a lot on a television show at the time called the, the Chuck Wagon Hour. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those very highly promoted, but lots of country Western singers and, and things like that. And they'd come on and they'd sing and they'd do background skits and things like that. Then they started dating and getting serious about the people that they were dating with. My grandfather pulled them aside and said, all right, so here it is. You can either be in the industry uh, or you can get married, but you can't do both. So what is it going to be? And they both decided to get married. They both had kids. They both had horrible marriages, got out of those marriages <laughs> and, and spent a very long time trying to figure out how do I get back into that without having somebody's thumb over me constantly. One aunt just decided I'm going to go out and be a country girl in the, in the rural mountains of Canada. <laughs> And one decided to do everything she could to be in, but not all the way in the industry. She was a masseuse. She was a pitch woman. And when she had kids that wanted to be out in the public eye, she 1000% was like, all right, let's get you in the industry. Let's do this. Let's let's put you on auditions. I'll cart you anywhere you want to go. And, um... Because she didn't want them to miss out the way she felt she had. Exactly. And again, we get that. I don't want my child. I don't want to be my father. I don't want. As soon as you get into that, and I will preach this until I'm fucking dead. If, if you are making decisions like that, you are doing it wrong. You can't let that be your guiding light. That can't be your North Star. You have to figure out what you do want for your children. You have to figure out what you do want for yourself. Because until you do, you're just going to create more of what you don't. But doesn't that industry kind of foster that kind of... Yes. That's why we're talking about it. It's like the epitome. Of I don't want. Yeah. (laughs) You can't help but to do the backstroke in that soup. Unless you're at the top, unless you're at the top and you're the one saying, I want to make lots of money. I want to use this person to make lots of money. I want to, you know, granted it always, every level has its own, I don't want, but, but even that, because I won't name names, but very high profile on many levels actor uh became aligned with my family for a short time during a filming of a very big movie and it was almost pitiful how badly he wanted to be a part of what seemed to him like a very normal family where nobody was telling him what to do where nobody was making him be anything or anyone And he is backed by a very big organization who puts a whole lot of stock in him and who uses him as a poster boy for their cause. And, and it's something that he agreed to as a very young person. 
And it's something, it's an organization that he'll be indebted to until he dies. Yeah, it is very sad. Yeah. And, you know, when I was um, beginning to really awaken, like I've always been a, a certain level of awake. I just, when I started to realize, oh, wait, there's awake and then there's unawake when I realized there was mm-hmm. a difference between those things. And I was working with my friend who was doing the surrogate channeling for me. The I was working with the Federation of Light, and that's a whole other story. If you all want to hear more <laughs> about my interactions with the FOL, leave us a comment because that can be a show. But um, for now, well, and I, I think we also have some I think we have some previous shows that we could point you to as well. Probably in our catalog that talks about that as well. I have mm-hmm. thoughts, um, but they when when they when I was sort of using him as a surrogate channel to figure out the story of who I am and why I chose this life and what I chose in this life and who I chose like what what the hell's going on? <laughs> Somebody give me the download. And they did. There was one session where they said, not that this has anything to do with the previous story. <laughs> Not at all. But they did say that there was a great concern with me getting attached to uh, Scientology mm-hmm. and that it was that was the one thing with all of my circling um, or circulating around and in Hollywood, that was the one thing that was not on the list they were very clear about that they were like don't get involved don't go near it this is not what you came here to do i had never received a message like that before because i've always been fascinated by their ability to brainwash people and Mm -hmm. what am i actually seeing because if you look at scientology's beliefs not to make this all about scientology i just think it's interesting that they glommed onto hollywood it's very very interwoven Yes, it's very interwoven. It's very smart. But if you look at their beliefs, a lot of their beliefs are really on point with spirituality in general. But with the caveat that they are distorted for means of control. Yeah. And I will tell you that the origin of that goes way beyond L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, sure. In fact, it goes to the beginning of Hollywood. Because part of the work that I was doing then, now this is this all um, unfurls into Heather's origin story in terms of her Hollywood karma. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt because sometimes these karmic stories, it doesn't matter if they happened exactly as you are remembering them. It only matters that what you are remembering is conveying to you the energy that you came here to work with and on. The purpose of the having purpose. lived yes. that Yeah, so it, it does life. not matter if your memories are completely on point. What matters are is historically that linear in yes, any way. <laughs> exactly. It matters that you're getting the imagery and you're getting the right message. So having said that, I I always knew that I felt just so disappointed in myself for not having completed my task the first time around. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was I was literally taken out of it. I, I could feel that. And as the memories started to unfold and I started to query my guides, not through surrogate sessions, but through my own work, personal work, um, I was shown, uh, eventually I figured out who I had been, at least I think I did, pretty sure. Uh, as Jamie said, she had my fingers. 
which was the weirdest thing to say. But because it was so weird, it it really hit hard. It hit hard. It hit home. Instantly, I burst into tears because I had been unsure up until that point. And when I showed Jamie the picture of who I thought I had been, um, which, again, is another story in and of itself, um, she said she has your hands. And I was like, holy fucking shit. What a weird thing to say. <laughs> like, that can't be true. And I looked and I was like, oh, my God. She does, because here's the thing about my hands. I've never liked them. I always thought that they were very square. They were very, they're not very elegant. I don't have a lovely curve to my nail bed. I've looked at shit like this, you know? I've Uh always wondered, why are my hands so tiny baby adult hands? What, What is, what are my hands? I don't understand. And I just, when I looked at the picture of the actress who I was relating to, I was like, I I can't be sure. This is just ridiculous because we always talk ourselves out of these things. But when Jamie looked at the picture, she instantly looked at her hands. And I didn't look at her hands because I assumed if she's an actress, she's going to have those elegant, graceful, Mm -hmm. willowy hands. She didn't. She had hands that looked just like mine. And I was like, that is the weirdest validation. Like you can feel when you get that spiritual validation, you can feel it. And it is the weirdest feeling. And there's no denying it. After that, you're just like, well, shit, I'm on the right track. At the very Uh least, I'm on the right track because you can't make that shit up. And my point is um, that they it was revealed to me that when the industry first started, it was supposed to be the first wave of awakening. Dolores Cannon talks about three waves of volunteers. And my parents... Uh, generation, what are they? Or Gen X, they're Gen, they're boomers. I think so. So boomers and then whoever came before boomers, I guess, would have been like the the very last of that generation into boomers would have been the first wave, I think. I haven't, it's been a while, but I think that's basically how it goes. My parents were definitely part of a wave of volunteers. But initially that whole thing, our very first show, we talked about the 80s and how there was so much awakening propaganda and how Hollywood was grooming us, the, us, this generation, Generation X, to wake up. Like there was definitely between Michael Jackson and Steven Spielberg and even Francis Ford Coppola and Disney. And it's so blatant. It's so, it's so blatant. blatant. It's so blatant. <laughs> Listen to our very first podcast. We talk all about it. And it literally was designed to wake us up. It was designed to embed and plant seeds for future messages that were going to come through and tie in. And um, and incidentally, that's not that was that was when it took hold. Mm-hmm. But that's not when it was intended to start. That's the planting of the seed. Well, the the thing is, is that the planting of the seed was Hollywood in its infancy. And Hollywood was supposed to be the, it was the first awakening game, so to speak. And what they showed me was they showed me Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. And I had never really paid attention to either of them because they were so far beyond my my era of Hollywood history, which was mid-30s to early 40s, um, which is where I really loved the, the golden era. Um, and so the, I didn't really relate to Mary Pickford's films because they were silent and I was too young. I didn't kind of I really didn't get it. And I certainly didn't like Douglas Fairbanks because he had a dark energy to him that I absolutely, to this day, despise. Like I look at Douglas Fairbanks and I'm like, I hate you so much. It doesn't even make sense. Like I should not have this kind of bitterness and disdain. 
for a, a historic figure who I, I never knew. But it turns out that the infancy of Hollywood was supposed to be that wave of awakening, but it was corrupted. Now, from one perspective, from a very human linear perspective, you can say it was corrupted by evil and it derailed the whole project and they didn't get it back on on track until the 80s when it took hold because the energy of the planet was not such that it could yet support it. But the truth of the matter is, is that with everything, including Hollywood and the entertainment industry, there is light and there is shadow. And no Mm -hmm. game will be entirely light or entirely shadow. So it is only once we choose sides, only once we choose our agenda, that whatever is opposing that agenda is good or bad. And that's what happened with Hollywood. It had its light and it had its shadow. And that light and shadow were paired together in the couple of Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, who, along with Charlie Chaplin, started – what was it? Uh, They started – United Artists. United Artists. Thank you. And that was going to be the first studio that put the power back in the hands of the creatives. And that was Mary Pickford's mission here as a starseed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Douglas Fairbanks was the shadow of that mission. He wasn't evil. He wasn't bad. He was all of the shadow energy that Mary did not embody because of how she incarnated. And the two of them were together as a sort of yin and yang deal. Now, interestingly enough, Charlie Chaplin's energy, in my historic rendering of this story, Charlie Chaplin could be considered the dragon. He was a dragon. He had a dragon's energy. And he came in as the third wheel in that party. And the three of them were the vehicle for he this whole lean either way. He could lean either way. And he was chaotic neutral, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I had a very adverse reaction to Charlie Chaplin when I was little, which sounds bizarre to say, but I will tell you that my father made um, several commercials as Charlie Chaplin, and he had a whole outfit. My mom would do his makeup, and I have a very clear recollection of hiding under – I would watch them do the whole thing. He'd get dressed in the suit and tails and the hat. And I would watch mom do his makeup. He'd put on the wig. He'd have it all on. He'd put on the shoes. And when he was all put together, he'd come walking out. And I would literally hide and cower under the living room table. I did not have a habit of hanging out under the living room table. This is not like, oh, Heather's just hanging out in her little quiet spot again. No, this was Heather hiding from Charlie Chaplin. (laughs) My parents could not understand what they were witnessing so they said oh it must be the shoes because the shoes were very large and very squeaky so they assumed I was afraid of the shoes because I was maybe three at this point Mm -hmm. I was not afraid of the shoes I was afraid of Charlie Chaplin and that was all part of my karma that I had brought in my memories my past life memories that I had brought in from that other lifetime because who I was then spiritually from a spiritual perspective saw charlie chaplin as the literal catalyst for why it didn't work out i don't Mm. have the full story on that but i blamed douglas fairbanks and charlie chaplin may they rest in peace (laughs) i blamed them for ruining mary pickford's 
agenda. Vision. Yeah, her mission. Yeah. They, they, and, and when I incarnated, I incarnated to make it right. Mm. And I didn't get the chance to do that because I was killed very early. Mm. And so that's why I came in this life adjacent on the other side of the hill. Do you know if you ever got to visit the lodge in that previous life while it was around? I have no idea. No idea. The problem with who I was is there is not a lot of information on her. She was killed yeah. so young before her career really took off that and and here's here's the real kicker. You want to hear something crazy? Later on in life, my mom was friends with a woman named Dorothy Lamour. Dorothy Lamour mm. came from the golden mm -hmm. era of Hollywood. And they had met on Murder, She Wrote. My mom had been doing the makeup. And Dorothy was doing a Legends of Stage and Screen or something like along those lines and asked mom to come be her personal makeup artist. We would get Christmas cards from Dorothy. And I thought it was really cool that my mom knew someone from that era, but I was still too young mm -hmm. to realize what – really appreciate you know, the yeah, gravity. Go, go with her. God damn. Go talk to this woman. And yeah. here's the thing. Dorothy Lamore was best friends with, with who I had been in that lifetime. Sure. She was her best friend. They came up together. They went through the same beauty pageants and they were best friends. And she was right there talking to my mom the whole time. The one person that could have told me everything I ever needed to know was right there. And I didn't no, I didn't get to take advantage of it. And sure. now you go around looking for books and for information about this person and there's nothing. You know, it, but there's not. It's there and it you just need, it, it just takes the right set of circumstances to unlock yeah. whatever it is that you actually need to know. And that's actually something that I want to impress upon Anybody who is on the journey and kind of has that sort of feeling, like, I feel like I know a lot, but just not quite enough to put all the pieces together. I think we all go through that stage. I know I've certainly been in and out of that stage myself many times with with different lifetimes, but I also have... I mean, the, the, the history and the anthropology and the genealogy is all a part of my thing because I understand how that information unlocks certain things for us. That's like, it's like learning the, the cheat code in a video game that yeah. gets you to the next level behind the wall to the through the secret room it leads where you to, power up it leads to the aha moments this genealogical mm -hmm. information these records they're all a coded recording of spiritual activity they mm -hmm. are a material manifestation in our physical world of the akashic records mm -hmm. so Absolutely. of course of course they're going to lead you to the aha of course they're the cheat code and we're meant to have it and when you are meant to have these these pieces of the puzzle, they will be brought to you, just like mine have been and still will be. I'm not done with this storyline. I've got more to suss out, but I've at least achieved some sort of yeah. comfortable resting point where it's not just this annoying itch that can't be scratched. But it's still hard when you when you wrap your head around certain certain things that come to light where you're like, I was that close. Yeah, I was that close and I couldn't quite reach it. And the thing that I think we have a hard time 
wrapping our heads around is the fact that because you were like, I see from my perspective, because you were that close, because your mom had that connection, your, your mom was helping to bridge those gaps for you. You were too young at that time to possibly wrap your head around that situation. Your mom stepped in to be the bridge. Yep. Which we've talked about before. Your yep. mom was a bridge. Yep. Your mom was bridging you between that life and this life so that you could have that information. It will come up. And we are in an era, and I firmly believe this, um, where more and more of that kind of, those kinds of stories, the stories that, that we think have been lost to history, buried forever, will never see the light of day. Those things have been coming up and it is, it's just a, a, a progression has been mounting. I feel the energy mounting around things like that, where more and more is, is seeping up through the surface and coming to light. And I think it's going to be incredibly interesting, especially for the Hollywood, the Hollywood machine, because things that have been buried and sequestered for a long time, because let's face it, we have people in the industry that have been in the industry for a long time that lasted, you know, into their late 90s, early 100s now that are all starting to fade away. And those secrets that have been on lockdown for so long, the things that you thought you couldn't possibly utter, the lid is coming off of those things. Those things are, are creeping up to the surface. They're starting to spill out. And it's just a matter of how neutral can we remain as these things come out because the immediate knee-jerk reaction is to go one side or the other. Put your, you know, put your flagpole on that side and say, I am for, you know, X side. Insert self-righteousness here. <laughs> but what you're not going to understand fully yet is that there's so, there's so much that's interwoven. There are so many instances of of people who I'm not going to say didn't have a choice because everybody has, of course, a choice, but people who went through a situation where they didn't feel like they were empowered enough to choose the thing that their heart wanted to choose. And so they chose something different in order to protect themselves or to protect their family or their reputation, or their finances, or what whatever they deemed as most important. Whatever they didn't want time. to lose. That thing that they didn't want to lose, exactly. They made a decision based on that, which again, was a decision based on, I don't want, I don't no. want to lose this. And it's important to keep that in mind as these things start to come up that you that you look at those things under the umbrella of these are people who were clearly making decisions based on an I don't want or lack mentality 
or a mentality of being very small, being disempowered, being disenfranchised, not being protected, not feeling like they had any ground to stand on. They made decisions based on those things. And how did that spill over into the people around them? How did that spill over into society? How did that eventually spill over into the lives of the people that they were ultimately trying to protect by making the decisions that they were making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's the road to hell is laced with good intentions. And it's not just Hollywood, but Hollywood has, has always since its inception intersected with and has been woven into um, all other facets of our lives. Hollywood is designed as a display of what we're meant to be seeing. Literally, we're going to see it unfold in Hollywood. Of course we are, because it was designed for display. That's the whole point, is to put it up on billboards, is to put it on television screens, is to put it on movie screens, is to put it on the radio. The entertainment industry was literally designed to show us what we're working on. What we're believing. It's like a giant rotating Rubik's Cube of possibilities. And we see every mixed up angle through every movie that we watch, every television show that we watch, every commercial, every play play that we've ever seen, uh, the music that we listen to. And that filters into everything, our government, it filters into our education, it filters into the way we see and, and think and remember history, it, it, into our healthcare system, even everything, every, every facet of our culture. It's, it's pretty amazing. I can't think of, I can't think of another system in its entirety that has more potential power than Hollywood does. The financial system. But even that is shaped by entertainment. Mm, I would say it's more of an equal handshake. I would say the financial systems are influencing entertainment as much as entertainment is influencing influencing the financial systems. I'd say that the two two things that are going to be unfolding – I think this year is the year for the financial systems to be uh, in the spotlight, uh, for better or worse, and sort of for the truth to to really come out there. And I think the Hollywood reveal is going to be slower because I think Hollywood still actually serves a purpose as a vehicle towards awakening, whereas the financial systems are doing nothing but to stymie it. So for me, that's how I see it unfolding. I think that the Hollywood reveals are going to come, but they're going to be more measured. It's like a time release capsule, whereas the financial systems, it's going to be a big bada boom. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, there's something that I, oh, I was rewatching Footloose. And I am, I'm watching the... Everything always comes back to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Kevin Bacon, man, I'm telling you. I've and seen his, Kevin Bacon his, more in the last two weeks than I've seen in probably the last 20 years. And his $5,000 footloose haircut. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Dude. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, but I was watching the 
scene between uh, the character Ariel and her Mm -hmm. father, the preacher. So John Lithgow, and I'm trying to remember her name, and it's escaping me at the moment. Julie Singer. Julie Singer. There you go. Thank you. Um, And she's kind of quietly walked into the church while he was working up his sermon for the week. And she walks in and she sits down and they talk about the argument that they had had earlier in the week. And she starts telling him how, when she was younger, she used to watch him work up his sermons and she used to get such a kick out of it. And she was very impressed by it all. And he asks her, well, and now, and she says, well, it's show business, isn't it? Because I see the lights, I see the theater, you know, I I see, you know, all this big, over-the-top, dramatic kind of acting of it all. And he says, well, I can't think of another way to reach the emotions of people. And that's really it. Yeah. And that's really what we're seeing on all fronts. We're seeing theater. We're seeing it. Hollywood is just the the mirror of that. And we're seeing it with politicians. We're seeing it on the world stage. Um, and you need to remember, if you can remember nothing else, that what you are watching is all theater. Theater. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> so I think we did the thing. Yeah. I mean. And also, we- I'm rumbly in my tumbly. <laughs> I haven't had breakfast yet. And we touched on a lot of things here. And there's a lot more still to talk about. And if you have things that you want to talk about concerning this, or if you had a thought or two, we would love to know Mm -hmm. what those are. So please reach out to us. We have all sorts of social media. We are in all the places. We are in the IGs. We are in the TikToks. We are in the discords. We are in the Patreons. We are in all the places it's also just as simple as emailing us at soul archaeology, the soul archaeology podcast at gmail.com. Like it's, and there's a link in the show description that will take you to literally all of those places. Right. We make it so easy to reach out to us. And we will be having a discord meetup this Saturday at noon on February 24th. So if you want to talk to us about life and what you're witnessing out there and sort of get in league with a group of people who are on the same page, then that would be the place to do it. It will be on Discord, and it will be on Saturday, the 24th of February. And we hope to see you there. Yeah. But until next time, have a great rest of your week, rest of your month. We'll see you soon. And uh, yeah, take care.